Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. It's the Triple Threat Theater Podcast. <laughs> Episode 50. No, 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 no. I'm Atreyu Dexberger. And I'm Bastion Miller, <laughs> the Goblin King. <laughs> no, that's Jareth. Oh, right, right. Of course, of course. There's a lot, lot of names to work out this episode. <laughs> yes, there's going to be some fun pronunciations. Oh, man. Millsy, back at it again. Yeah, boy. Episode 50. How the hell did we do that? I have no idea. Half, halfway to triple digits. Still feels like we just started the show yesterday. Yeah. I mean, you can ask me right now how long we've been doing this. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Years? It's Longer a couple than we weeks. Think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Mills, we came to party for episode 50. Not quite a mop <laughs> and not quite a puppet. Yes. Do you even understand that reference? <laughs> sure don't. I was waiting for you to tell me. <laughs> uh, it's just one of my many, many favorite jokes from The Simpsons where uh, the family is watching TV. They're watching some Muppet movie with Troy McClure, I'm sure. And um, <laughs> Lisa asks, Dad, what's a Muppet? <laughs> And Homer goes, well, it's not quite a mop, and it's not quite a puppet. And then he laughs, and he goes, so to answer your question, I have no idea. I mean, I would have put all my money in bed against the house that it was a Simpsons reference. Because <laughs> it's good. I mean, it's great. I mean, it's a perfect title name. This is what comes to mind uh, for yeah, hey. for this subject matter. However, not exactly really technically watching or talking about Muppets for this episode. Well, there's plenty of connective tissue. Oh, yeah. Plenty. Millsy, mm-hmm. break these movies down for the people, please. Well, we are going to be talking fantasy movies, 80s fantasy films with puppetry, essentially. I guess that's how we could define it. Okay. Uh, we're going to be doing Dark Crystal from 1982, Never Ending Story from 1984, and Labyrinth from 1986. You know, Millsy, early 80s. Safe to assume a lot of drugs going around. <laughs> so when credits rolled on the last movie for me, I said one thing: "Hey, hey, hey! Smoke weed every day." <laughs> That's all I could think of watching these movies. Was like these are gotta be a drug addict's delight. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know a ton about Jim Henson. He, he this is a Henson sandwich. He uh, he worked on the first and the third movie. We're going to be talking here. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the father of the Muppet. And sure. uh, I don't know a ton about the guy. I've often thought that I would love to see, almost in the way that um, when Mr. Rogers died, uh, we got not only a documentary, but then like a fictionalized film starring Tom Hanks about him. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to see a real in depth documentary about Jim Henson and or a movie about him in the the vein of something like the mr rogers movie because like you know i'm not the biggest muppet fan in the world or anything i don't know a ton about the guy but have you ever i don't know how or why i found myself doing this but 
Have you ever watched any of the footage from Jim Henson's funeral on YouTube? Nope. I mean, he seems like he was beloved by everybody, had like a a billion fucking fans and friends. And his funeral was like, it was like a fucking two hour long stage production almost with like Big Bird was there. And it's like one of the craziest things. And you see that again. I don't know how I ever found myself watching it, but you see stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. it just makes you think, like, this guy was, like, beloved by everybody, had a huge impact. Like, I'd like to know more about him. And I'm a little surprised there's not a documentary about the man. Yeah. But all that to say, you know, he worked on a lot of, like, family-friendly, like, kids programming and stuff. But at the same time, you know, he started doing all this during the, like, free love era And, you know, to look at him, I could believe he was a hippie. So Mm -hmm. I don't know whether or not uh, he was hitting the old peace pipe when he was coming up with and or making these things. But it's possible. It's easily possible. I'm with it because ends up being some wild ass 80s movies. (laughs) That's for sure. To say the least. Yeah. And if they were if they were uh, rolling a few blunts when they were making Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. I have no idea what kind of hard drugs were being done in Germany when they made Never Ending Story. But <laughs> I mean. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm in the same boat with Jim Henson. I know him. I know his name. I could pick him out of a lineup. Mm-hmm. That's kind of it. I know he did the Muppets. Yeah. But that even kind of ends like, is there even like a Sesame Street connection there somewhere? I don't know. Oh, yeah. He uh, was he was involved with Sesame Street. Like. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Sesame, like the whole like Muppets in general, mm-hmm. and I believe technically the puppets on Sesame Street are Muppets. Like all that comes from him. Like it comes from like his shop or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Make them like I'm. I'm not 100 percent sure. Like you, I don't know like all the full details. But like, if I was on like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and it was an early question, mm-hmm. uh, I would probably go ahead not ask the audience and just say like Who invented Sesame Street. Jim Henson, Ooh. final answer. Maybe I'm wrong, but... Okay, all right. I like that description, so we'll we'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime there's a usage of an old throwback to a game show, I'm I'm with it, so... <laughs> I'm sure that that show is still on with God knows who hosting like it. Like the sixth point, host or something? Yeah, if, if not more, but... Yeah. Um, Anyways. So I had seen NeverEnding Story and Labyrinth before, uh, Never Ending Story was a big one from my youth, like one of those movies that I I believe my sister and I used to just watch over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Same with the second one, because I hadn't seen any Never Ending Story in a long time, uh, like since I was a kid. And then like a year or two ago, I saw it was on HBO Max, the first one. So I watched it. And as I was watching it, I kept waiting for all these things to pop up that I remembered. And then the movie ended and I was like, oh, I guess maybe I watched the second one more than the first one. Because mm. there are definitely things that must have been in the second movie that uh, aren't in the first. But so, but I mean, I remembered a lot of the first one too. So definitely watched a lot of NeverEnding Story 1 and 2 as a kid. I don't know if I've ever seen the third one. And uh, Labyrinth, probably within the last decade, saw it for the first time. This was only my second time seeing it. And uh, until now, Dark Crystal has eluded me, so that was mm-hmm. a first for me. Nice. Um, pretty much same for me with NeverEnding Story. This is the only one I've seen of the three. 
but um, I feel like the, the, that was like kind of in heavy rotation. I mean, I'd be one of those kids that say they have like traumatic life experience from watching Neverending Story, which we'll get into. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I don't know if it was around the same time or just like they have a similar like feeling to me. But I, w- I used to watch Neverending Story a lot and Return to Oz, which feel oddly similar for whatever reason. See, I've never seen Return to Oz, but I know just from, like, the internet and people in kind of our generation that that was, you know, allegedly at the time kid-friendly nightmare fuel for a lot of yeah. people are in, like, our age range. Give me one second while I write down Return to Oz. <laughs> um, <laughs> just write down all ages nightmare fuel. Is a... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's just... It's got to be close in the release date and everything, but just one of those movies are just the kind of like I said, that general like dark feeling that, mm-hmm. oh, the, well, there'd be a trifecta actually for me as a kid with these kind of movies. Never Ending Story, Return to Oz, and Legend was another one we used to watch mm-hmm. a lot that like freaked me out. So that was like kind of like that maybe could have been for kids, but not quite kind of fantasy movies for me growing up mm-hmm. so yeah i've seen never Ending story but a ton of times i think i was like vaguely familiar with labyrinth only in just like david bowie for like a long time but never seeing it mm-hmm. and even like dark crystal i don't think i knew was a thing until much later in life i've seen like pictures or whatever of like jen the main character so many times that like i could have told you that's who was in dark crystal but that's really kind of the only detail i really had yeah i i knew like nothing about dark crystal like if you took the title off of the poster and showed it to me mm-hmm. as long as it didn't have like a big purple crystal in the center of it i could have just as easily looked at that and said like i don't know is that like the black cauldron i know that was a kid's movie i never mm-hmm. saw from that mm-hmm. time period but the Gelflings and the Skeksis and all yeah. that shit, that's all new to me. <laughs> it's insane. For sure. Like, even a couple years ago now, uh, they put out, like, a, like a prequel Dark Crystal TV series on Netflix. And at the time, like, a bunch of people I know were all talking about it and like, oh, did you watch it? And I would be like, I've never seen the original and people couldn't believe it. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Just somehow that one passed me by. Same. Yeah. Who knows? It was just got taped off. Never got taped off of HBO back in the day. So. <laughs> Yes, that's usually enough for never got rented from the library. (laughs) There you go. But uh, well, Dark Crystal's our first movie. You want to go ahead and hey, let's get after it. Scoot on over there to the land of Thra. I think is I think is what the uh, the the magical planet or land that they live in is. I mean, this is kind of like the general case for me with the show. But like again, when the the credits rolled, and I was just like. I almost don't want to do any reading into any of these because I feel like Millsy is going to find the most tastiest morsels <laughs> of the weird stories and bits and pieces of these movies. So I'm fully ready to get into it. All right. Well, Dark Crystal, 1982. When single shines the triple sun, what was sundered and undone shall be whole, the two made one by Gelfling hand or else by none. By Gelfling hand? Do you know what that means, Kira? Wait. This is a piece of the dark crystal. Then that's what my master meant. Yes. I have to put it... You have to heal the... the dark crystal. 
Prophecy. Prophecy? Jen, stay! Stay! No, stay! Stay and friend! Stay and friend! Prophecy! Prophecy caused all this trouble! That prophecy? Yes! That's why Skeksis killed Gelfling? Yes! Yes! Bad mistake! Skeksis afraid! Fear Gelfling! But you're Skeksis! But I am friend! Save you from Garthim! Why? Don't listen to him! It's a trick! No! Please! Must listen! I'm outcast. If I make peace, I'm outcast no more! Will you stop the Gotham attacks? Yes! Please! Come to the castle. Please! Show them you want peace. Show them Gelfling will not harm us. Please! 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 I'm pretty sure, I didn't write this down, but I read something about uh, the original name for like the magical land that, that it takes place in was supposed to be like Mithra. Mm-hmm. But then, like, that was too close to some other word or name from something else so they changed it to just thra or something like that not a great name really what i found like in my research reading about both this and labyrinth is that it sounds like both of these projects began with just jim henson wanting to work with a uh, artist named brian froud who haven't been super familiar with his stuff in the past but you know, he's one of these guys that just draws a lot of like fairies and mushrooms and dragons and things mm-hmm. and like makes a living at it. And uh, they they start out with like very vague ideas. Like I think the premise for this movie, uh, Jim Henson and his daughter came up with while they were snowed in at an airport somewhere and they just like scribbled down a bunch of notes on like napkins. And then they got Brian Froud involved and like as they designed things they just like made up the story as they went and like names were constantly changing and so to read the like behind the scenes trivia about these movies it's just a fucking briar patch of like this used to be called that and they changed this at the last minute and that's pretty wild <laughs> they sound like kind of hectic chaotic uh productions honestly yeah i mean you get that impression like even to the fact that uh I did write this down that, um, so the concept designer, Brian Froud, he had like a first meeting with Jim Henson and they discussed the project. And then, uh, Brian Froud went away and did like a bunch of drawings and he came back to Jim Henson and he was showing him his original design for the, the dark crystal itself. And Jim Henson just like looked at him funny and like didn't understand. And it turns out that Brian Froud has misheard him during the, that first meeting and the movie was supposed to be called The Dark Chrysalis, not oh, Crystal. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, on the fly, uh, Jim Henson was like, but I really like this design and changed the entire premise of the movie to be about a crystal. Like, that's how haphazard, <laughs> just just from reading about it, that these productions seemed. I actually like that. It's just <laughs> it's like, you just... know, we're going to roll with it. Yeah, I mean, watching these movies, you know you kind of feel like they were just throwing anything at the wall to see what sticks. And because it's like these unnatural fantasy worlds, it kind of is okay. Mm -hmm. Cause it's just like, sure. The next scene they can have these like creatures with like super long legs that they can ride that run really fast just to get them from point A to point B. And you can't question it because it's like this made up world. Like, sure. Maybe they exist. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of just like, Hey, go with it. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, now this thing's called dark crystal. All right, cool. What other weird names are we going to come up with? <laughs> Lots. 
gosh, among other things that they changed about this movie was like originally Jim Henson wanted uh, each of the three like races. So there's the Gelflings, there's the Mystics, and then there's the Skeksis, which are like the bad guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he wanted each of them to have like a different language. And he wanted, so he wanted, I guess, the Gelflings to speak English. And then the other two were supposed to have like made up languages. And they did right up until like the first test screenings, which were like catastrophically bad. <laughs> and so, because uh, they were, they were like subtitled, those other characters. Mm-hmm. And the Skeksis are in the movie quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of reading. And so after that, catastrophically bad test screening Jim Henson himself trimmed like 20 minutes from the movie and then went back and they redubbed everything in English just just to make it like easier to follow and easier for people to watch also like since this I mean the movie's kind of dark but it is like a kids movie or like a family friendly movie as well like Mm -hmm. it was intended to be viewed by kids Having like a lot of subtitles is just a bad idea yeah, anyway, I yeah. think, for that. Kids get bored easy with movies. So. Yeah. Honestly, the more I talk about it, the more I'm convincing myself that Jim Henson was high on something when he was <laughs> making this movie. Just having a good time. You know, it's 82. What What were your first impressions as a first-time viewer of this um, movie? Overall, like, I dig it. Like, I see why people are into it. I didn't even, even going in, I was like, like I knew Bowie was in Labyrinth and I was like, I was like, oh, I wonder who the human actors are in Dark Crystal. <laughs> there, there ain't any. I mean, there's a couple, like a couple uh far out shots of like someone dressed up like a uh, Gelfling running around. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's all, it's all puppetry and it's pretty awesome. Yeah. I read a couple of places that this movie was referred to at the time as the first live action movie with no humans. <laughs> I mean, it might as well be. I mean, so it's cool. Like, I mean, we ad nauseum, we say it all the time, but just like the movie magic of it all, just like, you know, there's so many shots where it's just like, you know, from the waist up or from the knees up because there's someone under there, you know, working a puppet. Like, <laughs> yeah, I love that. I was like, I had no idea the bad guys were going to be vulture creep creatures, you know? <laughs> I mean, I was all for it. I will say, Milsey, this movie has... One of, like, my favorite creature designs we've ever had on this show. Hmm, which one could it be? Those friggin' beetle scarab guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the goon, the beetle goons. <laughs> I mean, I love, when, as soon as they showed up, I was like, yep, give me more, give me more. And then they proceed to raise hell through the rest of this movie. It's like, when <laughs> yep. Tom's having a good time, Jen's up there in that, uh, that one uh, wizard lady's place with the the telescope, you know, they roll up and destroy the place, light yeah. it on fire. They Ogre. go to, a, you know, they get like saved later and they're at a little party. What happens? Beetle bros end up smashing that place <laughs> to bits too. I was like, these guys are the best. And like, however the costume was that, you know, they had those like bunch of legs hanging out. You couldn't really tell like where the human legs were or even how it was going. Like yeah. every time they were on screen, I was just like. Smile on my face because like, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah, apparently those costumes weighed so much that uh, every like five or ten minutes they had specially designed racks that they could hang like the actors in the suits from so that it would take the weight off of them for a little while because mm-hmm. it was like too complicated to take them in and out of the costume all the time. So they built racks to hang them from 
to like take the weight off. That makes it they they looked huge. I mean, they yeah, I because the Skeksis and those things had human actors inside, so they're pretty mm-hmm. big. Yeah, there was like a few times where I was like, even, especially at first, I was like, I was like, this probably people inside the Skeksis, but I couldn't really tell. I was like, this this could be like a half size you know, um, set or something. Cause I don't really know what's going on. Eventually you can tell there's, they are big cause there's people in them, but yeah, I'm uh, pretty sure I read that, uh, there were actually two people inside each of the Skeksis because the main actor would have their left hand operating the left arm of mm-hmm. the Skeksy. And then the right arm would be holding up the head because, you know, they're moving mm. the head around because they're like the main action of right, the puppet. Right. And then another person would be in there to operate the right arm and I don't, maybe something else. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they're they're pretty big. They had to be. Yeah. I mean, they're cool. Like, they, all the animatronics were really good. Like, all the movement. I think, like, the weakest characters are actually, like, the Gelfings. Yeah, and it, I think that part of the reason for that is it's almost an Uncanny Valley thing because they're the most human-looking things in right. the movie. So they look the fakest. Yeah. They, I mean, they're just like movement wise, it's not great nearly as good as the other ones. And yeah. Like you said, the whole time I'm just like, yeah, we got vultures, we got beetles. Yeah. We got whatever the hell the priests are supposed to be, aardvarks <laughs> or something. And then like the Gelfings, I was like, they're not quite cats or humans or dogs. Is this like giraffe? Like what are they going for? Yeah, they're here? just like smooth little humanoid things. Yeah. They look like, like shaved fraggles or something. I don't know. Yeah, something just kind of. And because like... of that, like because they have like those smooth faces because they want them to be like approachably cute yeah. and all. Inviting. It's just like there's not a lot of motion to the faces. They no. look like stiff kind of mannequins they look a little creepy i feel like like from the the lips up they're very stiff yeah and it's like the other stuff looks so good i was just like because i was really getting into it i was like it was kind of a drag but you know it's fine because there's other things i'm liking so much but Mm -hmm. yeah just seemed like a i'm just not even from the design point of view i was like it was kind of a letdown a little bit like you said they're just like really smooth kind of like elongated faced mannequins yeah I mean, they're fine as characters. Like, I noticed because a few times I was like, man, Kira's got this weird language she's always speaking. So when you're saying the part about like other things would have had subtitles, I was like, God, if the most of this movie sounded like she does when she's talking in her <laughs> language, I was like, yeah, no wonder they changed yeah, it. Yeah. Cause she was raised by the podlings, which is like another race. Mm-hmm. And they, because they're not in the movie much, I guess they kept the kind of not exactly English language that they mm-hmm. spoke. And that language was cobbled together from like three other existing languages or something because I read an anecdote about how people from like certain parts of the world, like they can't follow what those characters are saying, but like certain words will jump out to them that they recognize in their language. Okay. But yeah, a lot of weird stuff like that. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of the design of the Gelflings. The Mystics are kind of cool. The Skeksis are really cool looking. Yeah. They were originally envisioned as crocodile people by uh, Jim Henson and then Brian Froud. He said that he originally was planning to make, like, to base their look off of, like, deep sea fish Mm -hmm. and then somehow ended up on these, like, weird bird things with beaks. And I think they look pretty cool. Yeah. I like creepy vultures. They look cool. The beetle henchmen look really cool. 
there's tons of great like designs and stuff in the movie. My favorite thing, like as far as the puppeteering and like the creatures and all go though, mm-hmm. is just like all the random shit in the environments. Oh, like when yeah. they're, they're just like out in the woods somewhere and there's like a bazillion little like <laughs> creatures and things right. moving around. And yeah. it's like, you're looking at, if you just like stopped and stared at it, you could be like, okay, I know that this is like a fake outdoor set built indoors in a studio somewhere. Mm-hmm. But then they add all that life. Like they must have had oh, yeah. dozens of people in some of those wide shots of the outdoors, like hidden under the moss and everything, just moving all of these little critters and creatures. Totally. And I mean, I can't remember all of them, but there were like a couple really noteworthy, interesting ones. Yeah, just like some, like you said, there's always kind of like some weird, weird ass little ball things bouncing around. Yeah, my absolute favorite one that I can remember though is early in the movie when Jen first starts out on his mission, and he's on his. It's like right before he meets Agra, I think. And um, he's like climbing like the side of a mountain or something, like walking down this narrow path, and. There's all of these, like, it looks like uh, foliage of some kind. There's these, like, orange and yellow, I think, polka-dotted things, like, just dangling everywhere. They look like some kind of vines or leaves. And then he, like, makes a noise or accidentally kicks something, and all of a sudden they all start to move and, like, withdraw into, like, cracks (laughs) Mm -hmm. in the rocks. And I was like, holy shit, that's cool looking. Yeah. That was like one of my favorite bits. Just I, I love all the environments and all the attention mm-hmm. to detail and that stuff in this movie. Yeah, because I mean, it feels like they there's not a bit of like natural landscape. Like they built every set, probably had to because of the puppets. But yeah, the only part so I would awesome. say maybe is like those wide shots of the mystics like tromping through like their path to wherever the mm-hmm. hell they're headed, mm-hmm. and you don't spend a lot of time with them. But like those are full size like people inside of those suits as well. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, like pretty much everything is created. Like just imagine as big as the uh, the Skeksis are, like that main like temple area they spend a lot of time in the movie, how big that fucking set had to be. Mm-hmm. Huge. That's what I mean. Like when I was, especially at first, I was like, is this, are these like full-size people in here? Because these, these sets are humongous. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's awesome. Augur was cool too, just that you mentioned, but... um. The whole thing when you first see her with the eyeball and all that. Mm-hmm. Loved all that, too. Oh, gosh. And then, like, her set. Like, when they bring Jen into her house and she's got that, like, I don't know the term for it, but it's like a little model of the solar system that, like, moves and, like, mm-hmm. you know, all the planets, mm-hmm. like, spin and kind of orbit themselves the way that they should. It's There's an enormous one of those in the center of her house. And... Then, like, they spend one scene there for a couple of minutes, and then it yeah. gets destroyed by the Beatle people. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting there thinking, like, that's an enormous set <laughs> yeah. that they built with that giant mechanical thing moving around to just spend one scene there. Yeah. <laughs> but that's cool, honestly man. because it's a it's like a journey movie where, like, the character's on, like, a mission. Um, aside from the Skeksis lair where everything is going to end up and they spend most of their time... Most of the locales, like where the podlings live and that little village that Jen starts off in with the mystics and all those individual little like outdoor scenes, like the one I was talking about with those like orange and yellow tentacle things, like that's in one scene of the movie. Right. <laughs> and how much time did somebody have to spend making it? It's it's yeah, wild. But... That movie magic, man. 
Like fuels my soul, Mills. Yeah, it's that stuff that you would take for granted and just like do in CG now. Totally. And, and it wouldn't be nearly as detailed. I mean, I'm always afraid when I start talking about like stuff like this that I'm going to come off as like, you know, some curmudgeonly like, oh, fuck oh. CG. Like, but yeah. just watching a movie like this that was made mm-hmm. before all that. It's just, I don't know, warms my heart. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because we, we still love CG stuff. We just love practical more. That's all. It's like yeah. the one doesn't have to be bad and one is good. But just when you see the practical stuff, man, it's just like fire on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. You know what I really liked was the Skeksis, their like, battle for the next ruler. <laughs> yeah, with the rock. Dude, dude, with the rock? It wasn't like they're not going to have a sword fight. No, it's like, whichever one could chop this rock in half. I was like, that's <laughs> such a cool idea that yeah, you know, I was all about. It's something that's weird, but it's not so weird that it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, it doesn't need to be explained. And it just, you roll with it and it works. Yeah, it I just, like it, stuff it, like that. It plays easy, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't forget uh, Kira's lunatic dog. Fizzigig or whatever oh, his name man. is. I think it was bonkers. I love that guy too. With the giant fucking chompers. Yeah. Uh, and oh, I wrote it down. I was almost going to forget. I think they were called land spiders. Those things that. That they ride keep, with the yeah. really legs. Yeah. Those things yeah. are fucking crazy looking. Dude. Crazy looking. <laughs> I think they were land spiders. Yeah. They, and it looks like the wide shots. It's like someone's playing as the land spider with is just like. You know, a puppet's like sitting on their back, mm-hmm. but they're walking around with like stilts on their arms and legs too, whatever it was. <laughs> I was like, this thing is nuts. It is bizarre. Yeah. I mean, you can't deny just the imagination and the actual like design work and the prop building and everything. Mm-hmm. I have so many great things to say about this movie because of all that. The other element of the film, though, is like the story, which I think is pretty bland and boring. It's like, just the most basic of like uh like a Lord of the Ring ripoff. Yeah. Chosen one is here to save everyone. Yeah, there's a prophecy for no good reason that a Gelfling is going to bring the missing shard of the dark crystal back and when he puts it in, it's just like, you know, a Gelfling is essentially a hobbit. Like they're little <laughs> humanoid I mean, people in this like fantasy so much, world and like exposition in the first five, ten minutes. Yeah, there's like a whole narration at the beginning. Like, it's crazy. And it's like, you know, the shard is the ring. And then, like, the place he has to bring it is Mordor. And that's where all the bad guys are. It's just. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, that's that's all fine and good. And it's, it's the thing that I say all the time is that I think tropes are good. And it annoys mm-hmm. me when people just use a trope as an excuse to hate on something. But. Yeah. Mills, what do we say? We're pro-trope. Pro-trope. Yeah. Definitely pro-trope over here. It's just, it would be nice if there was. I don't know, a little more to it. Cause once you, it's like, it's even in the same genre as Lord of the Rings where it's like a fantasy Mm -hmm. film. So it just feels like the most basic hero's journey. I was thinking the same thing. And then I was like, well, it was 82. Like what was out then that would even be, you know, how much of it is like, cause we have 40 more years of movie movies after this. Mm -hmm. I was like, it's still just pretty simple, but yeah, definitely like the hero's journey. The chosen one, you know. Yeah, I would just say Neo, that, the, it's like all that everything else about the movie is better than like the actual story. Yeah, but I mean, you're here for something. It's not really the story. Yeah, the story is essentially just there to give them an excuse to build and operate all this stuff. And I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe that's maybe that's enough because it's pretty fucking cool looking. Yeah, all of I, think, it. I mean, I would say it's an elf. Yeah, because when 
when something shows up on screen, it's like there's always some some little bit to be on the lookout for. So mm-hmm. I dig it. This was a good experience for me. I get it. You know, all all the lovers <laughs> yeah. of Dark Crystal. I get yeah, I like all I can think is like, man, how would I feel if I had seen this when I was a kid? Like it surely would have resonated more. Like I enjoyed it now, but mainly like we're talking about for the technical aspects of it. I mean, yeah, if I was a kid, I'm sure it would be lumped right in with Oz and Neverending Story. And yeah, all the other stuff. For sure. When you were a kid. Yeah, definitely. Movie cost $25 million, which seems sounds like a lot in 1982. I mean, they spent it. That's for sure. Yeah, they certainly did. Uh, box office ended up costing 41.4, or mm-hmm. not costing, but netting them $41.4 million, So not bad. One thing I did read is I think Jim Henson, like, bankrolled this himself yeah so or he bought the rights back or something there's there was like a producer i can't remember his name and in the early days of sesame street jim henson in a kind of um calvin and Hobbes sort of way didn't want to merchandise sesame street because he thought it would like diminish the value of it or something Mm -hmm. and a producer talked him into it and was like well just think all the money that you can make off of sesame street you can then take that to turn to like bankroll the uh the other projects that you're passionate about that's like a plan of attack for a lot of people yeah and so jim henson went ahead and like you know sold rights to do like toys and merchandise and stuff like that and then i guess he worked a lot with this same um, producer and when he was making Dark Crystal and the budget just kept inflating and inflating, the producer allegedly came to him and was like chastising him about how much money he was spending. And Jim Henson reminded him of like, "You told me to do this. Like, I'm putting money into mm-hmm. something else that I feel like passionate about making." And now we have the Dark Crystal. I mean, it's so crazy when you think like that long ago and that kind of money, and you're just betting on yourself, and then it but pays off. I mean, it didn't quite pull in double, but. Yeah, you know, twenty or eighteen million more is plenty. I mean, it was enough that like the reason that Labyrinth happened is because this movie was relatively profitable, and Brian Froud and Jim Henson decided to work together again. So nice. we'll get to that shortly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the one other thing that I wanted to mention that I read about this movie was that uh, Jim Henson's intention with it was to get back to the darkness of the original Grimm's fairy tales as he believed that it was unhealthy for children to never be afraid. (laughs) My man, Jim (laughs) What a quote. And apparently, yeah, apparently one of the big criticisms that the movie did have at the time was from parents who said that it was too scary for kids. But I mean, a lot of people from our uh, age range like remember this from when they were kids. So I mean, it had its oh. desired effect. I would say, yeah, man. I just love the idea that like the guy that made Kermit will just lean and be like, "Kids should be scared." <laughs> well, yeah, like yes. a little bit of what I read about Jim Henson, because you know he invented the Muppets, which there have been the like kind of prime time version of the Muppets that gets like a little more risque than you know, the Muppet Babies or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he created Sesame Street, at least I believe he did, (laughs) which is obviously very much geared towards children and like early learning and stuff. But I guess there was a period, I did not know this um, until just the other day when I was reading about this. He was afraid that he would get pigeonholed early in his career uh, in like children's stuff with all of the puppets. So did you know that Jim Henson actually had a segment that was regularly in the first season of SNL? Nope. 
I don't remember the name of it now, but it was essentially like kind of a darker, twisted version of like Sesame Street or like the Muppets or whatever with puppets interacting with real actors. And from what I was reading, apparently nobody liked it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. but it was Jim Henson trying to show with like jokes about drinking and drugs and stuff that uh, he wasn't just like a one note kids entertainer. And apparently, like some of the elements, it was like it was called like the land of something, like the land of Prof or something, like some made up name mm-hmm. where these creatures come from. And apparently, some of that stuff, like in the seventies kind of mutated and became some of the early elements of the dark crystal as well. So yeah, it all, all comes right. together eventually. I, I like it. I mean, I, I want to see that Jim Henson movie now. Yeah. Yeah. You me know? too. I have for a while. Documentary or live action, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. Oh yeah. I forgot about this too. I thought you'd, you'd probably be interested in this. Uh, a sequel film to this was planned back in 2006. Do you want to take a complete stab in the dark at who was supposed to direct it? Oh boy! You'll be excited to learn who it is, but I doubt you'd ever guess this name. Well, I was gonna say Guillermo del Toro, but no. But along those lines of like someone that you wouldn't expect that you are also a fan of, Hmm. Jendi Tartakovsky. Oh my man! (laughs) Yeah, back in 2006, and then later after he left the project, it was supposed to be the Spirig brothers who did the vampire movie Daybreakers and Predestination with Ethan Hawke. Jeez. But then after many, many, many delays and setbacks, the project was scrapped and the unproduced screenplay was adapted into a comic book series by Boom Studios a few years ago. Huh. Jeez, Mills. This movie casts a wide net. (laughs) Sure does. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's uh, that's about all I got to say about this one. I'm glad to have seen it. Yeah. Oh, we should mention as well, it's co-directed by Frank Oz. Mm, Right, right, right. I did see that. Yeah, so him him and Jim Henson worked together on this one and yeah. Frank That's Oz cool. just just for the hell of it. Uh listen to this lineup of movies that he's made. Please hit it. So this, The Muppets Take Manhattan, which you kind of expect him being Frank Oz. Obviously The Little Shop of Horrors, one of mm-hmm. my all-time favorites. He directed that? Yeah. Okay. That was all him. <laughs> and I mean, look at the fucking puppeteering of Audrey okay, too. Yeah, of course, of course. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Uh, what about Bob? Oh yeah, Bill Murray, mm-hmm. In and Out, which I don't remember much about, but I remember was kind of popular at the time with Kevin Klein. Yep. Another one of my favorite movies, Bowfinger. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Have you seen Bowfinger? Nope. Oh God, we have to get Bowfinger in a lineup if we haven't already. I fucking love Bowfinger. All right. Uh, he also then directed the score which comes out of nowhere. It's the, uh, the Edward Norton, the Edward Norton like, movie? heist movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And more recently, the remake of the Stepford Wives, which is like a horror film. So fascinating lineup of stuff Frank Oz has done. the place too. Yeah. All right. So now I think we can move on to okay. Okay. the never-ending story from 1984. Mm. I, I was just going to... I, I... I was trying to... Sneak away. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, no, no. I like children. For breakfast? <laughs> Never. I'm a luck dragon. My name is Falcor. And my name is... Atreyu. And you're on a quest. 
How'd you know that? You were unconscious. And you talked in your sleep. <sighs> Could you get round and scratch behind my right ear? Never quite reach it. Here? Oh. Yeah. yeah. Oh. That's so good. Thank you. So, little fella. You're on your way to the Southern Oracle? Yes. But it's hopeless. It's too far away. Oh, I wouldn't necessarily say that. You, you know how to get there? Why, sure. It's right around the corner. How'd all this happen? <laughs> With luck. You've already brought me the entire 10,000 miles? No. Only 9,891, as the dragon flies. You're amazing! <laughs> Having a luck dragon with you is the only way to go on a quest. Things will work out fine, Atreyu. Like I said, uh, saw this many times as a kid. Same. Just rewatched it like a year or two ago, just because I had been wanting to see it again for so long. Because it's one of those things where it's like, I saw it as a kid a bunch of times, years pass by, and then I start to think like, what was that crazy fucking movie about, <laughs> you know? Mm. And it is a crazy fucking movie. For sure. I mean, there's there's certain things from this movie that are just like burned in my brain forever. Yeah. You know? I mean, rewatching it, it was like... Things I had forgot that came back immediately, of course. Some of the sequence of things, you know, was a little off. No idea it was a German production. Yeah, that's something I learned. I think I looked it up a couple years ago when I rewatched it. Um, the thing that I find weird about it is it's a German production by a German director. But as far as I can tell, has a lot of American or English speaking actors and was filmed in English. Right. Because I'm watching the film and thinking like some of the puppets and things you could get away with like Falcor or the rock eater. You could get away with changing the language and like the lips wouldn't necessarily match up anyway. So that's fine. But like, I, I was even thinking to myself as I was watching at this time, like if they filmed this in German and then like refilmed stuff for the English language, like, they would have to change and refilm so much. Like I, I looked and I looked online and couldn't find any explanation for like why it was produced in English. If it was in a, a German film, mm -hmm. unless they just thought, Oh, well, America is the bigger market. So we'll just go for it. And I mean, it worked out for them because this movie had a budget of approximately 25 million and then made over a hundred million worldwide. Oh, did it? Yeah, wow. this movie was a huge success, and mm. it's one of those films that was even bigger in the home video market, which is probably how you and I ended up seeing yeah, it. For, oh, for sure. So yeah, I've thought about Falcor, you know, regularly my whole life. Crazy-ass <laughs> dog. Crazy-ass dog, uh, luck dragon. So the thing about Falcor, you know, he's the luck dragon, he's friendly, and he's helpful and everything, and he's, like, jovial. He looks like a dog, which is, you know, cute, but... Mm -hmm. I I wonder <laughs> if 
Falcor isn't in some way, shape, or form part of where my mild trypophobia comes from. Oh, Millsy, talk about it. <laughs> his back disgusts me. It's it disgusts me too. It is vile. It, I mean, my hairs on my arm are standing up right now just because we're talking about it. Like it seems like it would be so fun to ride on Falcor, but then I picture nope. that scene where he's like scratch behind my ear, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to touch you. <laughs> Just the way it's visualized, like, I guess it's supposed to be scales because he's a dragon, even though he has a lot of fur on him, too. But to me, like, when I was a kid, like, all those years later, like, before I rewatched it, in my mind's eye, they were, like, translucent, almost bubbles all over Mm -hmm. his skin or something. And I kind of understand why I thought that, because of the way they're, like, a pearlescent kind of shiny bluish purple white the, the problem is the coloring i mean again it's it's always like a thing i can always like like when i'm thinking back to this movie i was always like an unsettling part of falcor you know like think about I mean, it all time, but it's just like can i tell you what i think the real problem with it is please is if you have a typical dragon it's covered in scales it's like a mm-hmm. snake or something and i know that there's some people who are like ew they're disgusted by like touching reptiles or whatever but that doesn't bother me and if you had a dragon like that's more of a Chinese dragon that's like covered in fur, fine. It's like a dog or a cat or something. But the combination of like scales peeking out under the hair, it just makes me think of like psoriasis or a disease. Oh. Like there's like scabs underneath the hair. It just it yeah. fucking grosses me out. <laughs> yeah, there's no reason for it to be there. It's the wrong color that makes it like extra like slimy looking or something. I don't even know. Yeah, I don't like it. It was actually worse for me as an adult. I mean, I'm so glad. This is one of those things where I was half sure I would bring it up and you would just be like, you are crazy. No, well, we are both, you know, got that trypophobia problem, so. Yeah, and I really wonder if that's partially where it comes from because I watched this a lot as a kid and it's like Falcor's the thing everybody loves and remembers and I always Mm. had this weird trepidation about Falcor as a kid because I was just like, oh, the scenes with him kind of creep me out. No, it's always it's always been like eighty percent like Falcor's cool and he's dog, he's huge, whatever, haha. But it's always like that weird ass back. So I, I'm with you a hundred percent. Like that weird back. Like even just thinking of touching it. Like why is that part? Why couldn't that be his belly? It's worse that it's his back. Yeah, it's you know? gross. It's like on his head even as well. Yeah. It. Ugh. Oh, I'm good. I'm glad I could find a kindred spirit here because that's always oh, yeah. bothered me. Without a doubt. But uh, Falcor aside, <laughs> yeah, so this movie is based on a book written in 1979, uh, pardon me for mispronouncing this, which I'm surely going to do, uh, by a German author named Michael Ende, Ande? I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce that. Okay. And so the movie only adapts the first half of the book. And thus does not convey the message represented by the title, Neverending Story. And so the writer of the book worked with director Wolfgang Peterson on like the original draft of the script. But then Michael Peterson kind of went off and started changing things. And when uh, the writer of the book like saw the changes that he had made and how it like didn't really fit with like the tone and style that he had intended for the book. Uh, in the first place, he went to the studio and asked them to change the name of the film because, in his opinion, the title just didn't make sense anymore. And it mm-hmm. kind of doesn't, I guess. 
So when they denied him, he actually sued the studio and lost. Mm. And But then he did ask for his name to be removed from the opening credits of the film. So his name is only like in the end credits. Oh, wow. So then when the NeverEnding Story Chapter 2 came around, or NeverEnding Story 2, the next chapter, whatever it's called, apparently that one takes influence from the second half of the book. Mm-hmm. And then there was a third one called Never NeverEnding Story 3 Escape from Fantasia that is like a wholly original plot. Gotcha. Had you ever seen the sequel? Do you know the second one? I don't think so. It'd be At this point, it'd be one of those things I'd have to see it now to figure that out. The outstanding memory that I have about it is, um, I guess it's a Treyu again. I know it's a different actor because it was made like several years later and the kids were too old to reprise their roles. But... Mm-hmm. Um, there's like an element in the story where like a bad guy is pretending to be a good guy and like offers to help the main kid and uh, he like grants him wishes or something, but like doesn't tell the kid that every time he grants a wish, one of his memories will go away. And it's visualized oh. as like his memories turn into these little balls, almost like in um, inside out. And like the bad guys like collecting mm-hmm. them in like a, a vase or something until like towards the end, the kid has like no memories because he's like used so many shortcuts in his journey or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's like the thing that when I was watching this a couple years ago for the first time in a long time, I was like, where are the fucking memory balls? <laughs> but <laughs> oh, completely shit. different film. Love it. Yeah. So uh, presuming you hadn't seen this in a while, uh, how was your, yeah, been decades. how was your experience uh, revisiting it? It's, you know, I think I liked it more when I was a kid than I do as an adult. To me, the the main thing I walked, came away with is it felt like a book that left a lot out. Uh-huh. So, I mean, that kind of rings true with the actual production of it. You know, I watched that last. I watched Dark Crystal first, then Labyrinth, then NeverEnding Story. Well, a big thing, too, is like Falcor, you know, was cool, but like there's definitely some limitations with his uh, puppeting and animatronics i think i read that he was like 43 feet long or something like the actual mm-hmm. puppet oh i believe it so you know i mean it was that that stood out to me i feel like i'm kind of like i don't know what i thought of when i was younger but i'm like i'm kind of here or there with the whole like you know the book is tied into the real world and the kids got to save everyone yeah you know towards the end i mean i'm kind of like I don't know if it needs that. I don't know if I fully even glommed onto that as a kid, like what was going on there. Yeah. I like the idea now, like watching it as an adult. Yeah. I mean, I could, I see why it's it's definitely something different. You know, it was like, oh, that part of it's like, okay. I get, I keep saying it's here or there for me. It was kind of it. I mean, a lot of the movie just felt like, uh, let's just fight like Trey going from one place to one place, you know, like a lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of traveling, which is like, really feels like the gist of it. Yeah. You know, I like the feeling of this one that you're right. It's just like Atreyu leaves one place and then it's like smash cut to somewhere else Mm -hmm. or go back to Bastion in the attic of the school. And then when you cut back to the book, he's elsewhere. Yeah. But I do like the feeling that every single place Atreyu goes is like a mini set piece. Uh, It's definitely that. I mean, there's definitely that. Yeah. And there's like memorable stuff at each one. Like obviously the traumatic death of, uh, Artax in yeah. the Swamp of Sadness. Mm-hmm. And then um, the giant turtle is something I remember very like mm. fondly from when I was a kid. And then 
the actual uh, meeting of Falcor, which takes us, I think, pretty quickly to um, that first trial with the two sphinxes. Yeah, yeah. Which, I don't know if I noticed this as a kid, but watching as an adult, uh, those sphinxes have their tits out. <laughs> yeah, I said that to Megan when we were watching it. I was like, whoa. Those Germans, man. That. Yeah. But uh like that's a very memorable scene, super creepy when their eyes are just like slowly yeah. opening and the lights coming out. That's probably one of my favorite scenes now. Yeah. Just cuz that kind of there's like a just an inherent like creepiness to it. It's almost like um Indiana Jones and in, um The Last Crusade. Oh, he's kind of, mm-hmm. you yep. know, he's doing all the the tasks. It felt like one of those and I was like I actually like that quite a bit. Mhm. Yeah, I like that scene a lot. And then like at the end when uh, Atreyu comes up against what was the dog's name? I don't remember. I just know like I don't know if he Gamork is the nothing or, or he something? just comes along with the nothing. Yeah, he's like like is he it's an no, agent of the hard. nothing. Like he wants the nothing to happen. Like what does he say at the end? Uh, that when Atreyu is like, "Why would you want the nothing to win?" And whatever the dog's name uh, is, Gamork. He, it is Gamork. Okay. Yeah. So he mentions something about like, because the whole idea is, you know, the nothing is like people losing their, like going back to the beginning, the dad is basically telling the kid Bastion to get his head out of the clouds and like come back to the real world. So the kid reads the book and the whole story of the book is that the nothing is like responsibility and adulthood that like takes away like your imagination and fun. It's like people losing their dreams. And so the dog likes that because when people are less imaginative and just like going through the paces of their lives, it makes them easier prey. Right. Which I don't know how that makes any sense because within the book that he exists, the nothing isn't just like people losing their joy in their life. It's like the entire world is disappearing, but whatever. <laughs> it's a I mean, kid's yeah. fantasy story. Yeah. Yeah, you can't dig in too hard. But basically, I think it was the way he says it's something like like Fantasia is imagination, and he is like the loss of that. Yeah. Oh, the nothing is the loss of that. So. Yeah. So I get, I get, get how it like plays back into Bastion is like you know he's the necessary part to saving everyone because mm-hmm. it calls back to his dad. One of the uh, writer. Uh, Michael Endy or whatever his name is one of his biggest problems with the movie was that you know the whole thing is Fantasia is like it's made from like imagination and all of this and that in the end they simplified like the way that Bastion saves Fantasia and the writer really took issue with the fact that he, he made no real effort like they changed it in the movie to all he had to do was give the childlike empress a new name mm-hmm. where i guess in the book it was more about him having to like use his imagination to bring the world back somehow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that makes more sense and like that was his big issue like he hated the fact that it's like it's so simple now <laughs> i mean yeah i can see that i guess especially if he's the one that wrote it you know yeah i also think it's weird that like so the whole thing that bastion eventually learns is that he has to give the childlike empress a new name and that will save everything. And he's talking at one part about how his mother had a beautiful name. And I'm like, oh, he's going to give the childlike empress the name of his mother. But then what he actually yells out as the new name at the end is Moonchild. And I really doubt his mother's name was Moonchild. <laughs> yeah, it's 
That's actually good. You picked up on that, but yeah. That would have been better <laughs> to say his mama, yeah, Moonchild. I mean, if there was some kind of explanation for that in the beginning, like you saw like yeah. the, you know, the her death certificate or something, and it had the name Moonchild on it or I mean, something. But Back back to our opening, Millsy, that's because someone was just like, puff, puff, <laughs> Moonchild. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Totally. Old crazy Wolfgang Peterson. Mm, seriously. Who, uh. I had I Wolfgang Peterson's a name that I knew, but I couldn't have told you anything he'd done. But this is the guy uh, who gave us well, Neverending Story was his first English language film, even though again it was made in Germany. But also the guy who gave us Enemy Mine, In the Line of Fire, oh. Outbreak, Air Force One, Get Off My Plane, Yeah, The Perfect Storm, and Troy. <laughs> oh damn! Yeah. Oh, all right. Go ahead, Wolfgang. <laughs> And uh, the kid who plays Bastion, oh, this was interesting. He didn't have much of a career past being a child actor. He was in both Cocoon movies, Mm. and uh, he was Victor, the main character in Tim Burton's original Frankenweenie short film back in the day. Oh, no way. Yeah, that's a weird coincidence, I think, or a weird connection. I kind of wish he was a Treyu. Like the same actor? Kind of, yeah. Well... I mean, it wouldn't have 100% made sense because the whole idea is that the kid's presence as, like, the Earth child is, Mm -hmm. like, he is a separate entity from Atreyu, and, like, Atreyu didn't understand that, like, he's been bringing him along the way with his journey and everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, it would would bring some changes, but... Yeah. I'm just, I'm not kind of not crazy about a kid that plays Atreyu anyways, but... Oh, Noah Hathaway? Can I tell you a couple things about this guy? Please. Well, first off, notable other things he was in are the movie Troll. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, he was in Battlestar Galactica, the old TV show. Okay. He is now a tattoo artist and owns a tattoo parlor in California with his wife. I like it. This is the thing that really got me, though, when I'm reading about this movie. is like... This kind of shit, I I imagine, happened more often back then. I mean, we've talked about instances of, like, a dude losing his eye on the set of uh, Maximum Overdrive because of a runaway <laughs> So we got blinded in this one, too? Mower. <laughs> but, uh, so Noah Hathaway, the child actor who played Atreyu, uh, suffered or nearly suffered a number of injuries while making this film. Among them... He, while training to ride a horse, he was thrown off of a horse and stepped on by it. Oh, damn. He almost lost an eye during the fight with Gamork when one of the claws of the puppet poked him in the face. Jesus. And apparently, like, you know, it's not really so much of a fight. It's like Gamork. Like jumps out of the wall and that's it. Lunges at him. And then when he lands on top of him, he's holding a knife that stabs him. Mm-hmm. But... Because they almost stabbed his eye out, they only did one take of that scene. And when the puppet landed on top of him, it completely winded the kid and he couldn't breathe. Damn. And this is the most fucked up child labor laws, man, in Germany. I know. (laughs) Uh, During the Swamp of Sadness sequence, uh, there was a real horse on like an elevator that was under the water to make it sink. You know, I was thinking, why the hell did they do that? Okay. Yeah. It was it was literally like on a stage they had like an elevator and a pool filled with water and they just had the horse stand on the elevator and slowly lowered it. Okay. During that scene, 
the first time through, Noah Hathaway's foot got caught on the elevator and he was dragged under the water. What? And by the time they got him back to the surface, he had gone unconscious because he was drowning. I mean, did did they try to kill this kid on purpose? (laughs) Yes, I think so. Damn. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of fucked up. His parents owe Wolfgang money or something? (laughs) Especially since you consider, like, the context of that scene. Yeah. The swamp of sadness and the whole idea is, like, the, the horse is drowning and... Then the kid almost dies. That's wild. That that scene happens a lot earlier than the movie than I remember too. Yeah, he no sooner leaves on his journey than his horse dies. Yeah. But that's I guess because he has to meet up with Falcor and he becomes his new faithful yeah. steed. Yeah, I was surprised when was, I was like, oh, it's I was like, here comes the, uh, you know, the moment that is seared into my young brain as I was watching it. <laughs> there was a scene that was removed from the movie during filming because it proved too hard to film. Where uh, when he meets, when Atreyu meets Falcor for the first time, he was supposed to rescue Falcor from like this, it was like a swarm of wasps that take the form of a giant spider or something. Boy. (laughs) And they couldn't make it work. And that's why like he meets Falcor, gets saved in the, uh, the swamp, and then they immediately fly to that place with like the little, um, what were they called? Urgle and Engiwook or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like the scientist and his wife who makes potions. And the reason originally that they were like treating Atreyu with potions is because he got like stung by the wasps, but they had to cut that part out. So they just had no real reason for him to have slept for the entire journey. After a couple bong rips, it's like, I need a spider (laughs) made out of wasps. (laughs) Yeah. What a time to be alive. (laughs) But yeah, just because of how absolutely insane this movie is, and from scene to scene, it's just like anything can happen, mm-hmm. which is, you know, honestly, uh, the case with all of the movies we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I was going to say, that's definitely yeah, a theme. Yeah, I still really like it. I like the whole way that the, you know, I like the framing device of the kid who, like, his head is up in the clouds and... Like, as a kid, especially, I loved the stuff about, like, he's in a part of the school he's not supposed to be in, and he's, like, there after after dark, and mm-hmm. that was definitely a thing. This is another case where, for all I know, you're going to tell me I'm crazy, but, like, when I was a kid, and, like, my sister would be in sporting events, and we would go to, like, school, like, late in the day when it's, like, dark out, and, like, you walk out into the hallway, and it's, like, only, like, the safety lights are on or whatever, Mm-hmm. And it's just like a like being in school where you're so used to it being like brightly lit during the day and then you're there at night. It almost feels like I'm not supposed to be here. Like <laughs> I always found that like a thrilling feeling as a kid. Yeah, I never had that one, but I can dig it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so like I always dug that aspect of it as when I was mm-hmm. younger. And uh, I don't know. I still like that element of the story now. I like that, especially the parts where it's like uh... – you know, he has like the the wind is howling and all that stuff, and he's like, mm-hmm. he's like, oh man, he's like, I, I, I gotta save some of this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm gonna need this for later. You <laughs> yeah. like that stuff? It, I don't love the payoff with the end, just for whatever reason. Just like his like total interaction, and maybe it is because he just has to like name her. It just mm-hmm. doesn't like feel like watching it this time. It didn't feel like enough for him to have to get involved. Like for me, it was enough for him, him just to be like, you know like experiencing it like he was earlier in the movie. 
So you're saying you would have come to Michael Andy's defense in court? I mean, yeah, I think I would have actually, to be <laughs> honest. I mean, it feels like it feels like such a big part of the book that it's not enough of a payoff for me, I think, in the movie. But mm-hmm. what I'm really getting is just like I like when it happens throughout the movie. Like you said, yeah. he's going, he's looking for, he's evading bullies, he's looking for a spot to hang out in the weird old attic. You know, like I like that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't love how Fantasia like enters the real world at the end and he's like flying on Falcor yeah, and like chasing the bullies. Like that doesn't really make sense to me, but I like how he affects the Fantasia. I don't like Fantasia affecting the real world as much, but Yeah. I mean that's that's again, it's like going too far. Like he doesn't do enough with Fantasia and then too much happens after that. Yeah, he gets unlimited wishes and gets to yeah. ride his dragon dog right. and scare bullies. Creepy backed dragon dog. I love the bookstore scene and the old the old guy that works there. I love that sequence. It's just like I don't know, it has like a fancy free yeah. like he's like vibe. a little maniacal, like he's what's he trying what's he getting out of this? You know? Mm-hmm. That little but, smile he gives when the kid oh, takes the yeah. book. Yeah. I love all that. I haven't really talked about him, but uh the rock eater I love. It's just like always like that as a kid, yeah. Yeah, crazy fucking character that they made up. And then there's Teeny Weenie and his racing snail, <laughs> which the I think is cool. Snail's hilarious. Yeah, that uh that's Deep Roy, who's like little person kind of stunt man who's been in a thousand things, and he was also all of the Oompa Loompas in Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, okay. Then there's Night Hob and his narcoleptic bat that he flies around yeah, on. I like that too. I just like all those crazy fucking characters. Yeah. I mean, these movies are packed to the gills with bonkers ass characters, if you can't tell already. Yeah. I love the look of the nothing, like with the kind of rolling clouds that mm-hmm. look really weird yeah, and creepy. Yeah, it was a cool effect, however, they did it. Mm hmm. Yeah, that was like one of the, I think like one of my the better effects. I like that, and the Sphinx is like definitely stood out to me. Yeah, uh, like I said, like yeah, Falcor took a hit for me a bit, <laughs> um, probably just because the other the animatronics and the the puppetry is so good in the other ones. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, it's still cool. I mean, you know, it gets points because it's like forty foot long dragon yeah. dog. So yeah, just I like the look of the movie overall. Still, just like still cool, you know. It's just it's cool that this is a movie. It's got a banging ass uh, theme song. Oh yeah, and you the know, synth yeah. music throughout. That's another thing I really oh, yeah. love. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no denying. Like again, like think like always been thinking about Falco. Always been singing that never ending story song in my head. Never you know? ending story. I mean, it's yeah, a jam. It's good I mean, stuff. It's, it's, it's an earworm for sure. So. And apparently there was no theme song or uh, synth music in the German release. They just had the orchestral score. Uh, missing out. Yeah, seriously. Damn. Guys didn't even make it in your own language, and then you're taking out all the good tunes? Shit. Crazy. Yeah, right. Uh, and yeah, at the time it was produced, it was the most expensive film ever made in Germany. That's wild. Just the German connection is, blows my mind. But Yeah. It's unusual, to say the least. Indeed. <laughs> I think that's about all I got for that one. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do it. Keep it moving. All right. On to our third film from 1988, or no, sorry, 1986. We have Labyrinth. Ah, what have we here? Uh, uh, nothing. 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 Uh, nothing. Tra la la. Your Majesty. What a nice surprise. Hello, Hedgeward. Hogwarts. Hoggle? Hoggle? Can it be that you're helping this girl? 
helping? In what sense? In the sense that you're leading her towards the castle. No, no. I was taken back to the beginning, Your Majesty. What? I told her I was going to help her solve the labyrinth. A little trickery on my part. <laughs> but actually... What is that plastic thing round your wrist? Ill. Oh, this! <laughs> oh, my goodness! Where did this come from? Figgle. Hoggle? Yes, if I thought for one second that you were betraying me, I'd be forced to suspend you headfirst in the bog of eternal stench. No, Your Majesty! Not the eternal stench! Oh, yes, Hoggle! <laughs> and you, sir. How are you enjoying my labyrinth? It's a piece of cake. Oh, really? Then how about upping the stakes, hmm? As I said, I had seen this once before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that this one is like a, you know, time-honored, beloved film for people, again, from our generation who grew up in, like, the 80s, early 90s. A movie that didn't have, like, the respect that it maybe deserved back then, but, like, now that people are older, it's, like, definitely become more of a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Probably considered a cult classic, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. You'd think it would have been like a bigger mainstream thing at the time because of like David Bowie, but Mm -hmm. this movie budget was 25 mil and only did 12.9 domestically in the box office, so it didn't do great. Oh, damn. But um, this movie, definitely my experience with it when I watched it the first time was the same experience I had with The Goonies, which was it's like a kids movie from when I was a kid that I didn't see until I was an adult Mm -hmm. and it's like I could see the appeal but it just did not play for me like Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I watched this being excited to finally see it and then just sitting there like with a sour puss look on my face the whole time (laughs) so it's been a few years rewatching it now still don't love it but I definitely enjoyed it more this time around for sure that's good how about yourself? This was a first time viewing? First time, like, I was kind of aware, like I said, like, David Bowie, how he looked. I mean, I might have known that um, Jennifer Connelly was in it. I'm not mm-hmm. even really sure, to be honest. This was sort of like her th- fourth movie. Yeah. I mean, B- Bowie was really, like, the only thing I knew. I think I knew he was, like, the Goblin King. But as far as, like, what the actual, like, labyrinth itself looked like or any of that, no clue. I feel like it took a while for me to get into it, but I ended up liking it in the end a lot more than I liked it in the beginning. Yeah. Um, once I actually like get to like the goblin castle or whatever later on, mm-hmm. you know, once there was like the the mismatched group of heroes have joined up and they're you know yeah they're heading to the castle to save the baby. I was like I was like it's kind of the same with um, Dark Crystal. I was like All right, I get it. Like now I understand. There was like parts where I was like, early, back to the beginning, I was like, I was like, is this a musical? I was like, is this why Dave Bowie's <laughs> in this? I was like, I had, I had no idea, but not really. I mean, there's a couple instances. Yeah, there's a couple of songs, but um, it's not a full-fledged no. musical. But I was like, I guess if you, if you got David Bowie, because he's the man, you take advantage, I guess. So I felt like throughout, it, w- it was starting to feel, I was like, couldn't quite place it, but I was starting to feel, I was like, it felt like... They were just like grabbing creatures and stuff like leftovers from other movies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cause it seems like so many things are kind of like a mismatched. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have like an, I don't know, not necessarily the aesthetic, but just like the kind of overall connective tissue that maybe like Dark Crystal has. Mm-hmm. 
you know, this felt different, but well, this just feels like like Dark Crystal feels like it's supposed to be a world where like all of these things could and would coexist with one another, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's like, I don't know. It does feel like it all kind of belongs together. Whereas this feels like if you got dragged into like a dream world where anything is possible. Yeah. Totally. And it's just like this thing can look like this, and oh, over here, there's mm-hmm. this crazy looking fucking other thing, and yeah, it felt like it's starting to feel like a bit of like a demented Oz was how I like started mm-hmm. to feel of it. But, you know, but it was cool. I mean, there's like a lot. Of, again, it's like 1986, so a lot of it's just like me looking to see like I'm enjoying myself as she's running through the labyrinth, and I was like, oh, I think she's like just running through like the same like 12 feet of set, <laughs> and it's just like yeah. a matte painting at both ends, you know, like stuff like that. I was like, all right, it makes sense. Yeah, this one especially, a lot of cool matte paintings. Oh, big time. Like, whenever they show, like, those big wide shots of, like, the labyrinth and, like, the castle at the center or Mm -hmm. the parts where, like, at the beginning when she first gets into the labyrinth and she's, like, walking forever and then they show those shots, like, way down the path, it's probably, like you said, 12 feet of actual path and then a painting at the end of it. Right, right. Lots of cool stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I started just like the mismatched kind of hodgepodge vibe. Like at first, it was like kind of had me scratching my head, but then I just got into it more and more as it went on. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jennifer Connor's like pretty young. I think she's like probably like 16, 17 or something in the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, but she was good. I mean, I like, you know, it's funny when it's just like it's basically her and Bowie for humans and everything else is a creature. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, it's kind of fun. I was like, I was like, I, it felt like very, like it wouldn't never get made today as it was in 1986, and I like it for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the story is just kind of super well, simple. It's the kind of thing I've tried to put this into words before, and I still don't know if I've quite found the way to say it. But it's like you watch a lot of like fantasy films or or things like some horror movies and whatnot from back in the day, in like the 80s, and it feels like. In general, people could watch and enjoy things without having to have a ton of logic to them, like as Mm -hmm. long as it was entertaining and colorful or whatever. Whereas nowadays, I feel like a lot of times, even if you watch like um, a movie intended for kids, like, uh, gosh, what was the one that came out like a year or two ago? Um, It's based on a book. It's like uh, A Wrinkle in Time. Yep. Um, Did you see that recent Wrinkle in Time movie? I did. Yep. I really did not care for that film, and it feels like the entire movie is just exposition constantly, whereas, mm-hmm. like, I go into it wanting, like, a fun, just, like, kids' adventure movie, mm-hmm. and I, like, Labyrinth has no exposition. It's just, like, take everything at face value. What happens is what happens. Just keep going. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, I find that to be a little tedious because it's just, it feels like, how do I know if we're making any progress and how much longer is this going to go on? But at the same time, there's something nice about that where kind of like we were talking about with never ending story, just from scene to scene, it's just like, you never know what's going to happen next. And like they, they cross this doorway or whatever. And then it's like a completely new, like anything could happen. And yeah. So like I'm a, I'm a man of two worlds about this one where mm. I am like you. I like the fact that as it goes on, there's more characters. I, I enjoy it more towards the end. Like when it's just her in the beginning wandering around, I'm a little like, Neh. it's a little tedious for sure. Yeah. But uh, so like there's things I like about it. There's things I don't like about it. It still doesn't fully work for me. But yeah, I definitely came around a little more mm-hmm. this time than I did the first time. 
I mean, I think this and Dark Crystal like helped me like having no expectation, no idea of what I was getting into helped. Like mm-hmm. I said, I mean, it feels a little tedious at first. It's like the the hodgepodge nature of it, I was like, because I I can't think. I like the uh, is it Hoggle? Is he the like the little dwarf guy she first meets? Yeah, the main one. It's just like he's like very cookie cutter kind of fantasy character. I was like, oh, I mean, is this you know what am I get? What am I gonna get out of this? For I'm here for creatures and muppets and puppets. And, you know, like, <laughs> what what am I gonna get? But I can ask me like as it goes on. There's one like major turning point. I was like, I was enjoying myself more. I, you know, it's again, it's the hero's journey, uh, you know, ragtag group uh, getting together to to fight the bad guy. The whole thing. There's one point when it get they get to like the goblin city, and there's that giant door, and the door is actually like a like a mech suit. Oh, guard. With the mech suit built into I was it. Like, yeah, Dude. I was like. I had no idea that Labyrinth was going to show me one of the coolest things I would, wish I could have <laughs> thought of, which is like a, a mech door castle thing. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. I mean, so I just, just like start getting into that. There's, I mean, there's one other like crazy robot thing that they, that's like a Gatling gun that there's a mm-hmm. shootout in the middle of Goblin City. Like fun little like character design things and just like weird out there. It's not as good as like say like Star Wars or anything with like those wild characters, but it felt more as it went on more like that where it's not Dark Crystal's like three different species where Labyrinth could be anything could be in there. Yeah, and I was really enjoying it. And then Millsy, I was like, I didn't even know what to think at first, but then I was so on board with. I can't believe this movie has like a one-eyed musketeer dog fox thing. <laughs> Sir, uh, Sir Didymus. Sir Didymus, yeah. Millsy, this is the craziest character. I think we've ever, one of the craziest we've ever seen in any movie we've watched on Triple Threat. Yeah. This is like a lunatic fox dressed up like a three one of the three musketeers, like hell-bent on destruction. Who rides around on a sheepdog. <laughs> Who rides around on a sheepdog. Ambrosius. I was like, this is too crazy. I was like, <laughs> I mean, there could be any time where I'd see that and I'd be like, this is stupid. I gotta be honest. Labyrinth had me on board just because of the, the wild nature of this movie. I was like, I'm okay with this. You know, it was like, is this something I would have added to this movie if I was making it? I doubt it. But I'm totally 100% on board with it being in here right now. This shit is crazy. I'm a little torn on Sir Didymus because. <laughs> that makes sense. I'm not even going like, to argue that. <laughs> I enjoy what he brings to the, the story, but it's like. He's the one character in this movie that straight up feels like he got ripped out of the Muppet show. Something else. Like, the yeah. way that, like, he's he's kind of this, like, crazy, energetic little character who's running around attacking things. And, you know, he he's little, so it's not like a person inside of him or whatever. And he he's kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, the way he's flailing around. Like, he just looks like hey, the, way the sock puppet being swung everywhere, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, that... It's like a design thing for him that I don't love because there's a lot of other things in the movie I do like. Like you're right, um, Hoggle is kind of generic, but the actual like act of bringing him to life with all of his facial expressions and everything is really oh, that cool. was great. Oh yeah, I don't want to knock that. It's just uh, like what the, the hell the... was the big the big guy's name with the horns? I feel like every time he was on, every time they said his name, uh, I forgot Ludo. Ludo, yeah, he's cool as shit. Awesome. And it's like there's all these interesting designs and things, and then there's like this little dog that looks like he, you know, belongs with 
Kermit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, sometimes one person, yeah, is it too much for you? And I was like, it was just enough for me. It's crazy as dog. Let me throw this at you. I don't know if this is a hot oh, take or shit. not, but uh, not a big fan of David Bowie in this. Um, It feels out of place, to be honest. I mean, the music doesn't help with the, like his couple singing bits. Yeah. He doesn't really do much. I feel like he just, he's like dull as the villain. I mean, yeah, I mean, I didn't get any feelings of dull. I mean, he just doesn't have a lot to do. He's just, I don't know. Like, all the characters around him are, like, all energetic and everything, and he's just, like, boring old David Bowie in a fancy costume. Uh, He doesn't doesn't feel like much of a character, you know? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I see that. It just feels like a musician in a funny costume on a screen. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't help that he's just like the one human in Goblin City, too. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really take away from me for anything because it's just so much other ridiculousness, but it would totally would have made more sense for him to be done up as a creature. Well, apparently, originally, they had planned to do that character of the Goblin King as like a puppet. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know exactly why, but Jim Henson decided that he wanted to bring like music and have a musician play the role into the film. They considered Michael Jackson, Prince, and Mick Jagger, (laughs) but then ended up with David Bowie. And, like, I can imagine mid-80s Michael Jackson, like, playing this role and bringing some life to it. Mm -hmm. But David Bowie, again, it just feels like he's got this steely glare and just kind of, like, sits around. And maybe that's part of the way the character's written, but... I mean, maybe, because he kind of has a creepy look, you know? He looks like an evildoer. Yeah, in, that's just like makeup, though, like, and his cheekbones. Maybe. I mean, he's got that that that, that stare of his, but, I mean, yeah, it doesn't... It doesn't I just find him me. boring as the villain. Like, he's the central enemy in the film, and he just doesn't do a lot for yeah. me, personally. he doesn't really do any, really much in the end, but... Yeah. I thought the uh, part of the castle that was like an Escher painting... Mm-hmm. It was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. Yeah, how yeah. they brought that to life. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that at all. So, mm-hmm. just adds to. I mean, this movie's just bonkers, top to bottom. That is true. So, for the part of Sarah, played by Jennifer Connelly, among the actresses who tried out for the role are uh, Yasmin Bleeth, Sarah Jessica oh. Parker, Marissa Tomei, Laura Dern, Ali Sheedy, and Mia Sarah. All known people. Yeah, they went mm-hmm. with uh, Jennifer Connelly because. I guess she was at that right age where um, Jim Henson felt that she could play, she could play like both sides of the field. Like she could play younger than she is, but she could also like have that feeling of not being a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's fine in the role. She's also just kind of like a wide-eyed, you know, like oh gee, what's happening to me kind of character for the most part. Yeah, I think that's probably just like the role she should play. Yeah, it's kind of it, it. It's very quickly in the beginning. She goes from hating her little brother, in you know, offering him up to the goblins, to immediately sees the error of her ways. Mm-hmm. You know, they they get through that part of it very quick in the beginning. Yeah, I mean that was one hell of a MacGuffin to get the plot going. <laughs> oh, for sure. It's yeah. like I wish I didn't have a brother. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Never mind. Now I have to go on an adventure to get yeah. him back. I'm just gonna randomly offer him up to some goblins, I guess. But well. <laughs> You know, and even like in the opening, I was I again didn't know anything about this movie, so I was like, when she it very it looks like a Victorian movie. I was like, oh, 
Like, oh, yes, right. I didn't, didn't even think about that. Then you see she's wearing jeans. I was like, oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. Either way. I'm like, all right. See where this goes. <laughs> Movies written. Well, the, the one credited writer is Terry Jones, who's one of the Monty Python crew. But apparently the movie had like a bunch of different writers. There were like 25 different drafts of the script before everybody, including David Bowie, was happy with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the drafts was gone over and like written by George Lucas, apparently, who also helped edit the film. Huh. Okay. I think uh, that Gatling gun character you were talking about, I, another Star Wars connection, I read that Kenny Baker was inside that thing. Oh, nice. <laughs> Kind of interesting, the owl in the title sequence is allegedly the first attempt ever at putting a photorealistic CGI animal in a film. I was going to say, I was like very surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Even like I was checked what year this was because I was like, oh, I didn't think they were doing anything like this that long ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, all things considered, I think it looks okay. Yeah, I mean, that, for 86, mm-hmm. I, I dare to say it looked pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it looks rough now, but... Or back then, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And uh, as of May 2020, there was a sequel, apparently, in the works. I don't know if it still is, but uh, mm-hmm. attached to direct Scott Derrickson of uh, Doctor Strange oh, no fame. Oh, huh. I mean, I get it. <laughs> I mean, all three movies, I get it. You know, one of them mm-hmm. I just didn't know from my childhood and still get it. But these bonkers ass movies did not disappoint. These Muppets. <laughs> Puppets and mops did not disappoint. The one other thing I thought was kind of interesting about this one is uh, I kind of guessed this as I was watching it this time, but that was not David Bowie doing all that like weird shit with the crystal balls, like rolling oh, them over God his damn hands. It. And all. it wasn't. No. How'd they pull that off? A juggler named Michael Motion would literally just like stand <laughs> behind David Bowie and put his <laughs> arms through his armpits. And then... So good. <laughs> yeah. So he was doing all that without looking. It's called contact juggling. So good. I was like, go Bowie. I was like, I was sure it wasn't, but I was like, damn. I was like, how are they doing this? Yeah, as I was watching it, I was like, I cannot tell, like, visually, but I'm mm-hmm. sure that's not him. Like, that's what I was thinking. I was <laughs> thinking, like, David Bowie is, like, weird and eccentric enough that I can imagine he would have, like, spent a year of his life learning how to do this. But right. I was pretty sure he didn't actually do it in the movie. Totally. And he did not. But, uh, yeah, there you go. I think that's all I got for Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Very good. Poster time? Poster time. So being fantasy films, I think mm-hmm. we should be in pretty good company here. For sure. So Dark Crystal looks like... You'd expect a movie like this to have like a kind of painterly look like the other mm-hmm. ones, but it looks more like just like a drawing. like a Yeah, this is like colored pencils or something. Yeah, like a comic book style drawing. Yeah, I dig it. You get yourself uh, some Skeksis, you get yourself some, uh, what were they called, Mystics? Or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll call it Mystics, I think they had another name too. But You get uh, some Gelflings. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything that should be there. I don't know why the, what is the thing coming out of the ground? Is that the... Is that the castle that they were in? I just don't even remember seeing it in the movie like that. No, no, yeah, it definitely is. Um uh, early on in the movie, like all those cracks in the ground around it, there was like an effect where there was like light coming out of them. And then like at the end, like it's, it looks like that because of the crystal having turned to the dark crystal. Oh, and at okay. the end, like it's like all the blackness is falling off of it. Yeah, I forget seeing it like look just like that. But yeah, it's weird that in the climax of the movie, they don't show you a look at it. But at the beginning, they definitely show this is like, I guess that's the castle where the Skeksis are. Yeah. No, I dig this poster. 
Yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not in love with it. I don't think it's the best layout and design. Like it does just look like a random illustration that they put the logo on and used as the poster. Oh yeah, I think. Oh, I don't know. I'm... Yeah, that's kind of how it feels to me. Like it's just not the most appealing like layout. It's just like here's all the characters and there's the title in the middle. I don't love the guy. I think there's a lot of wasted space with all the credits in the tagline but if this was just like if i feel like if the whole thing was pulled out and they just put in the credits somewhere superimposed over like the bottom left corner or something i think it would be a lot better but mm-hmm. i like the artwork for sure it definitely takes away from me for being you know poster within a poster but yeah i dig this artwork something i did i like sure. the artwork like i think the drawing is very good and everything but uh something about it just doesn't feel I don't know. There's like part of me that feels like this was a drawing that wasn't intended to be the poster. And then they just used it as the poster. I'm, I'm sure that's not true, but that's like the vibe it gives me. Mm. I feel like the poster within a poster is what's doing that. Yeah. Maybe another world, another time in the mm. age of wonder. Yeah. That's like whatever. Unnecessary. Yeah. Like when you have a poster with this much weird shit on it, do you really need a tagline that's telling you like, this is in another dimension. <laughs> you, sure, you sure don't Mills. Yeah. Moving on to Neverending Story. Uh, this is much more the kind of style I would have expected from something like uh, Dark Crystal with mm-hmm. like a kind of 80s airbrushy painting yeah. look. This feels like a very 80s poster with the, there's a good amount of words there with the montage kind of bit at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's going to lose points for the amount of text. <laughs> mm-hmm. A boy who needs a friend finds a world that needs a hero. Like that's that's pretty good for a tagline. I dig that's that. That's good. If they if it was just that, be a lot better than this bullshit in the middle. But then they had to give us begin a journey into a limitless universe of entertainment, experience the enchanted world of a young boy's imagination, and behold the remarkable adventure that unfolds before your eyes. I mean, that's just like word salad nonsense. That that feels. Like two different teams were one team made the poster that like the marketing guys were like, eh, we got to put some kind of blurb in there. Yeah. Like the tagline up at the top, it gives you context for mm-hmm. like what the movie's about. The stuff in the middle there is just like, this movie's going to be entertaining. You should watch it because it's fun. <laughs> like <Some> gobbledygook. <laughs> yeah. I like the art though. The drawing's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I like the bottom bits more than the Falcor and Betray You. I just like the vibe and the color scheme, like the cool blues, night sky flying great. on a dog dragon. The blue with the clouds and everything looks real good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the art of uh, like all the characters at the bottom. It gives me the feeling of like an old picture book or something. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it is the whole movie is about a kid reading a book. So, yeah, I dig this one. Are those birds in the movie anywhere? I was just looking at that. No. They feel like something that more would have been out of like uh, one of the other two movies. Yeah, that's a rare dark crystal. It feels like those are like the baby version of the the Skeksis. Yeah, Skeksy babies. Mm -hmm. We never talked about it, but what was the fucking deal where there's like ten Skeksis and ten Mystics, and if one dies, then one of the other race dies. Yeah, I don't know at what point I realized that was happening, and then they combine in the end. I was like, why would these like loafs combine with a you know, a bird of prey and turn into this straw bed. Look at. I thing. mean, I'm I guessing know. the idea was that it was like the the crystal shattering. It like ripped them asunder, and you had like the good and bad parts of the same beings. And so, if the bad part of one died, the good part of it died too. And at the end, they rejoin when like 
peace comes back to the world or something like that's all just conjecture but yeah kind of weird and unnecessary, unnecessary. plot yeah. i would have said <laughs> yeah unnecessary but anyway third poster i like the vibe of this one it's kind of busy but uh i'm okay with it it's like a really nice layout and like very mm-hmm. very well done artwork yeah, on this one it really is i mean the white background you know, doesn't get in the way of any of this craziness that's going on with the art. It's got mm-hmm. that 80s logo with the chrome letters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. Jim Henson, George Lucas, and David Bowie take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. I could do without that. Yeah. I mean, you can get lost in the details on this one, but everyone's in there, you know? But mm-hmm. I dig it. I love this. I love this poster. Yeah, like I say, it's a little busy, but uh, all told, it's like, it's not like your eye is drawn and like to the stuff on the sides and you're constantly confused by it. It's almost like it turns yeah. into just like a, just like a gray nothing no, I think that like focuses you more on the center. Yeah. If all of these were like colored individually, like exactly like they were in the movie, it wouldn't, it wouldn't translate nearly as good as it does. Like the limited yep. palette helps it for sure. Mm-hmm. No, I dig this one a lot. Labyrinth, where everything seems possible and nothing is what it seems. I mean, what's with these posters with these double taglines? <laughs> I mean, I would take that one over the top one. Of but... course. Yeah, absolutely. But some people, they just, it's never enough. Yeah. Millsy Baby, break it down for the people. Ah, well, you know, I think Labyrinth is going to take it for me. Yeah, good man. I'm going to give that one the old uh, five crystal balls Ooh. being massaged by some guy <laughs> standing behind David Bowie. <laughs> episode 50 you heard it (laughs) i love it uh second place for me is gonna be never-ending story Mm. could go back and forth between a three or a four but i like the cut of this one's jib so i'm gonna give it like four nasty fucking scabby scales on the side of falcor's head all right and uh dark crystal i really wish i could put into words what doesn't work for this one about me or what what doesn't work about this one for me? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something about it. It's just it's not super duper appealing to me. I think I'm going to give this one two fucking weird ass oh, gelflings. Brutal. <laughs> Man, <laughs> two weird ass gelflings. Um, maybe it is I, the poster within the poster thing, like that putting that border around it. I honestly think it's that. It, it it's a completely different feeling. When it's bordered off like that. Look at Labyrinth again. It's like the artwork doesn't go all the way to the edges. It's like a, a piece of art surrounded mm-hmm. by a border of a single solid color. Mm-hmm. And I think it looks really good and it all works together. And then Dark Crystal has that bounding box. And it just looks like it doesn't, it wasn't intended to be a poster or something. I don't want to help you for this Dark Crystal. Lose the bounding box. So then the like the the ground below the tower that just stretches to Extends. the bottom of the poster. And then yeah. well, it stretches so that's like the credits are over top of that. Yeah, then you yeah. lo- lose the uh the parchment paper and just put the same image behind it with the with the title. Mm-hmm. I I think, I think that would be better. I think you'd like you'd like that much more. Yeah. Something just off about it for me the way it is. I mean, Labyrinth is getting the, the hard five for me, too. I'd probably go four on Dark Crystal, three on Never oh, yeah. Story. Yeah. But um, you're not wrong about Dark Crystal having something off. I mean, they 
I feel like if someone was going to reproduce this poster, they would take out some of that stuff we just said. Got to get rid of that fucking goldenrod box. Yeah, it's just <laughs> that thing silly, is awful. Silly, silly decision. Awful. I love it. Two weird ass gelfings. I love it. <laughs> Millsy, we ready to rock? Uh, yeah, I think I'm ready to rock. I'm gonna go first. Okay. I think we're gonna be completely different. Oh. I know. Millsy. Mm-hmm. I am going to buy Labyrinth. Really? Yep. That is not where I expected you to go. <laughs> I am going to borrow Dark Crystal and burn the ring store. Really? I I would not have guessed that from the conversations we just I had. I didn't want to I didn't want to show my hand too early, but it took me a while to get into Labyrinth, but just the crazy goddamn nature of it. I was just like right mood, right time, like just even thinking of the the point of this episode, I was like, there's so much crazy creature stuff in this one that I was just, I was totally on board. I mean, there's stuff I don't like about all three of them, but I found myself just like focusing on what I do like. And I really just did for me. Like, that's one I want to own. I want to watch again. I want to watch behind the scenes, whatever I can get from it. Cause there's just mm-hmm. so much bonkers shit in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really, I would like to own dark crystal too. Like again, like I said several times, like I get it. About these movies for never having seen them. Like, I get why people are into these. I mean, Dark Crystal's cool, just for, even from the production standpoint. Dark Crystal's so cool. I think that the story's a little too convoluted for me. And even just like the two main characters are just like unsettling to look at when it gets down to it. So it like really made it not like a buy for me. It could, as I was watching it, I was like, I don't know what I'm in for the rest of these two movies, but like I could see Dark Crystal being my buy because I'm really enjoying it. In spite of like the weirdness, I'm not tossing the ring and story into the sun. I mean, I loved it when I was a kid. I mean, I still like it. I mean, these are three movies that I enjoy, but something just feels off to me now. Never the Nevering story. It feels like there should be more. Like I said from the beginning, it just felt like a book that's like had to be chopped down to be an hour and a half runtime. Mm-hmm. You know, like the story's like it's okay, but you know. I don't like love a tray you. I kind of, there's not a lot of like creatures and puppetry or anything like too wild for me to like fully get into. How do you feel about the band a tray you? I can't see her now. Around her drinking um, better than the kid playing a tray you. <laughs> still good. Still a good time. Still like glad I grew up with it, you know? Especially like for me right now today, it's like I could see myself like not needing to see Neverending Story again, but like actually watching these other two for fun. Mm-hmm. So that's how I'm rolling. That was a little bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. I thought for yeah. sure Dark Crystal was going to be your number one. I mean, I was kind of like on board with it a more like length of time wise, but like actual like enjoying it when it came down to how crazy Labyrinth is. I was just, you know, I was like, this was it for me. <laughs> Fair enough. All's fair in Triple Threat Theater. Mm, indeed. Uh, Labyrinth is going to be my burn. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I definitely appreciated it more this time, mostly uh-huh. just from like a technical standpoint. Like this always happens when we watch three films that are like a really tight theme. Mm-hmm. It's like I become hyper aware of the thing that they all have in common. So like I just spent so much time just like, imagining how these things work and like impressed by 
you know, the skill of the people who made them and operated them and everything. And there's plenty of that stuff to love in Labyrinth. But like I said, I, I just like for David Bowie to be such a central, important part of the movie. And then I just think he's kind of boring in it. I'm going to get you a stuffed Sir Didymus for Christmas. <laughs> I don't love his look. I can get over the Sir Didymus thing. Like I said, I like the character. <laughs> Uh, I don't like the framing story all that much. As a framing story goes, I think that the one in NeverEnding Story is way more interesting. This just being like, I'm upset I have to watch my brother. Now I yeah. want him back. And I'm like spoiled. I'm a spoiled brat. So I sent my brother off to the goblin <laughs> world. Yeah. I let the guy with the padded cod piece take my brother. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, you know, I can appreciate it now, but I just don't enjoy it that much. Like yeah. the, the actual like plot and story mm-hmm. and like, I don't get like fully engaged in it mm-hmm. for me. Dark crystal is going to be my borrow. Didn't know what to expect going into this one. Had no clue that it was going to have no human characters in mm. it at all. And mm. I really like that about it. Oh, for sure. I wish that I was a little more into the two leads, but I don't really like the way they look and their quest isn't that interesting to me. Yep. Much more interested in the Skeksis and honestly wish we got more of the mystics in it. Yeah. This one, just from a craft standpoint, is just amazing to me. Like all the scenery and stuff we talked about and how alive the world feels with no literal literal humans in it. I wish those two now just were like, I wish they were two just like young mystic, like looked like that. (laughs) But like got around a little better than the old ones or something. Would have been Mm -hmm. better than their giraffe people or whatever they were. Yeah, just like tons of cool designs and cool ideas and things in that one. Mm-hmm. And then for me, I mean, part of it, I have to imagine a big part of this is just like the fond memories of watching this when I was a kid. Because like I say, I I watched this a lot when I was a kid, mm-hmm. you know, got away from it for a long time. But rewatching it now, like really fell back in love with just like the framing story elements that they keep cutting back to with the kid in like the attic of the school and everything and the bullies and like the. Oh, yeah goofy old bookstore owner and all that stuff and then just again the kind of like dark crystal just like the unique and interesting creatures and characters and the racing snail and the giant turtle and the rock eaters and this one does have a little bit of a less polished feel yes than the other two and i think I'm, i wonder if somehow some way that comes from it being like a german production <laughs> I think it has to. I mean, that's a big part for me is like how how like much more impressive I feel like the creature effects are in the other two. Mm-hmm. But I mean, not to say these look horrible, but I definitely feel like they're more refined. But yeah. then you have things like the gigantic fucking rock eater. And I know he's not actually that big, and they use like forced perspective and camera right. work and stuff. But like, it just it feels bigger and more grandiose somehow, and. Like, the entire universe is being oh, yeah. eaten up. I mean, and, they definitely sell that bit. And it gets, like, way more dramatic in the end than, like, Labyrinth does, where Labyrinth always just feels like it's never, like, I'm never really that worried something's going to happen to the brother, but, like... Well, I mean, the stakes aren't that nearly as high as they are in NeverEnding yeah, Story, yeah. for sure. At the end of uh, NeverEnding Story with, like, the wind blowing through the windows and the kids screaming to the heavens and... Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just uh, I just get more invested and I'm like more interested in the story of 
never-ending story than I ever am in Labyrinth. And uh, maybe a couple more viewings of Dark Crystal, I'll come around to it more, mm. but it's... Uh, I mean, I won't knock never-ending story because of, like it'll always have a place in my heart. Like it's probably like the one of the first instances of like fantasy for me too, like growing up. Yeah. So I mean, I'll always dig it, but mm-hmm. I felt lucky to find some new jams thanks to the show. <laughs> some new jams and some new gems. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. So for me, buy a never-ending story, borrowing uh, Dark Crystal, and unfortunately, letting the nothing come and swallow up Labyrinth. <laughs> mm. Well, I didn't know how this one was going to go, Millsy, so another good time, I'd say. <laughs> Always. Always. Well, let's find out how we're going to have a good time next time. Yeah, we can do the damn thing. Yeah. Uh, we have 234 potential themes. Here we go. What's it going to be, episode 51? Millsy. Oh, yeah? Six. Six? Whoo, these early ones. Low numbers. <laughs> yes. What is oh <laughs> Trouble Death Theater episode fifty one coming up next, the theme What is worst in life? Hey, it's gonna be a good time. <laughs> uh this is one I came up with like as a theme to do a podcast about years before we even mm. came up with the idea to do triple threat theater. Amazing. I was trying to get someone to do this with me, and uh, well, here we go. Now it's going to happen. <laughs> That's a low ass number. Oh, is this the lowest number since the first episode? Uh, maybe. Just for I thought we had like a number three one time. We definitely had a single digit before after one, right? Oh, th- number three. Yeah, yeah. Herky, do the herky jerky. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. Mm. Hey, low numbers is when we're really b- blasting these trifectas out. <laughs> I'm excited. I've seen uh it's gonna sound weird. I'm pretty sure I've seen like one and a half of these. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh I've seen them all. Mm-hmm. It's weird that I'm so excited to talk about these when I'm about to say not not the biggest fan of some of them, but <laughs> hey. So you know we're in for a good time. I mean, the title does have worst in it, so what is worst in life? Coming up next. Here we go. Millsy baby. That's gonna do it. Mm-hmm. Triple Threat Theater, episode fifty. I'm Jordan Axberger. And I'm Ryan Miller. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, happy, happy. happy.